Ecclesiastes chapter three, starting in verse one is where we're gonna be at tonight. Ecclesiastes chapter three, starting in verse one. Uh, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand if you'd like to follow along with us and you don't have one. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter three, starting in verse one. I'll give you a couple seconds to get there. We're just gonna read uh, immediately and then we'll jump right in. Again, Ecclesiastes chapter three, starting in verse one. I'll begin reading now and then you guys can jump in once you get those books with you. We got to get moving. Bible says this, starting in chapter three, says, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather those stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you are a good, kind God. Would you do what only you can? Lord, would you change lives? Uh, Father, again, as I've, I've prayed so many times, if there is something that is uh, in my heart that I'd like to share but you know is not relevant or true, would you close my mouth before it leaves? Father, would you, uh, again, Holy Spirit, just do the work. We love you, we trust you, we submit to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said. Amen. Uh, I was never really good at math. I was never, any, anybody in here that you're just like, it's not my thing. You know what I mean? Thank, okay, a lot of hands. There we go. Uh, and so I was never really good at math, uh, especially in junior high. I remember I, I started getting this really, like this frustration towards math. And it was because I didn't apply myself uh, because I was just, honestly, I was kind of lazy. And so I remember being in junior high and going into my uh, algebra class, algebra one, and I would sit down and I would see like fractions and equations and things of that nature. And I was like, this has got to be the worst of Satan, you know what I mean? And so I just never listened, I never paid attention. And I remember two things specifically from being in algebra in junior high. The first one is that my junior high math teacher's name was Miss Wyckoff. Now I haven't talked to her since then, but if she somehow like finds a way to listen to this, I'm sorry, Miss Wyckoff, that I'm saying this of you. But I remember going back in that class and the only thing that I would do instead of pay attention would make jokes about Miss Wyckoff's name. I would say, hey, I would whisper to my buddies, like if you're not sick, why cough? And then like no one would laugh because I sucked and that would move, that was like pretty much it. Uh, but then also in, again, junior high algebra class, I remember the quadratic formula. Anybody in here remember that monster? X equals negative B plus or minus the square root of B squared minus four AC all over two A. Can I be honest with you? It's never helped me pay my taxes, never helped me change my oil and it's never helped me love my wife, but I know it in my head, the quadratic one. I'm so sorry if you're a math teacher in here. I'm just, it's just the truth. Uh, I was never, I was never a math person, and I think it's the humor of God that I ended up uh, marrying someone that her job, like her entire work is, she's a, she's a CPA, means that she does taxes, and all she wants to talk about is math constantly. She comes home and she's like, guess what I did today? And I was like, I don't know, but I also don't understand it either, but I love you. I'm never, never really good at math. Uh, there's something interesting about the beginning of our passage tonight as we jump in. Uh, if you look closely, there's actually math built into the text. Now, the good news for us is that it's not the quadratic formula, it's not fractions, it's not uh, algebra at all. It's actually simple 
Subtraction. Simple subtraction. So Solomon is going to list 14 of the most positive events, emotions, and activities that really sum up all of life, right? And so if you look back at it, some of these would be birth and healing and laughing and dancing and love and peace and all of these things that we just love to experience and seek after. And then unfortunately, these are also paired with 14 of the most painful events, emotions, and activities that also kind of sum up the other side of the coin of life. And some of these are are death and killing and weeping and mourning and hate and war. Now, I don't know if I have any mathematicians in the room, but 14 minus 14 is Zero, it's nothing. And so here's the point that Solomon is trying to make. This is seemingly the formula that dictates all of life. You must always match the positive with a negative component so that what is left over is always nothing. This is the sobering reality of the broken equation of life is what I'll call it. A baby is born. A couple weeks ago, I met my, uh, my goddaughter for the first time, and I'm not a baby person, meaning like I'm just terrified to hold them because I know I'm clumsy, and so I'm just like, I've never been a baby person, but I was like sitting on the couch, and my cousin invited me over to introduce me to my, my goddaughter, and I remember laying there, and he just kind of laid her on my chest, and I, I felt the baby breathe for the, for the first time. I was holding the baby, and I started crying because of how incredible it was to know that this is like a human being that will grow up and has a purpose, and God created an his image and it was just such an incredible moment but then there was this like weird eerie feeling as well because the Lord kind of impressed upon my heart and I think it was because I was preparing for this message and I was looking at this verse that one day hopefully it's 95 years from now after an incredible life that she lives she will have a funeral like, 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 like a very, very, very exciting vacation that you've been planning for. Like, hey, I can't wait to come to Hume Lake Winter Camp. It's gonna be incredible. We're gonna box sled blitz. We're gonna do broom hockey. It's gonna be, I have the best food that I've ever had in my life here. I'm not kidding. Like, I'm so pumped about being at Hume Lake. And then tomorrow by 1 p.m., you will all be on the bus going home as if it had never happened, the blink of an eye. It is the broken equation of life. The positive is always matched with the negative. Do you feel like you have peace? One day you won't be able to go to bed because your heart will be so restless. Do you feel like you're in perfect health? One day you'll eventually get sick. Is life so full? Are you so happy? Do you have so much joy that you feel like everything that happens in life just kind of rolls off your back? Like the good things just, just kind of make you excited and you want to sing and you want to laugh and you want to dance and, and that's just kind of who you are, just a bubbly personality. There will come a day when you, will, 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 you can't even stand because of how heartbroken you are. Do you feel loved and appreciated by those around you? The day is coming when you will feel betrayed and backstabbed and loathed and hated. This is the sobering reality of the broken equation of life. None of these things in of themselves contain meaning and purpose because every good thing has a negative counterpart that will eventually, watch me, ruin it or end it. So what is Solomon's point in making this list? Look with me at verse nine through 10. He says, what gain has the worker from his toil? Again, what, 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 what carries over from all of the work that he has done? Verse 10 says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. 
so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Let's focus on just verse nine through 10 one more time. He says, what gain has the worker from all his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Let's stop right there. And so he's saying that he's seen the repetitive cycle of life that nullifies the good. Wake up, go to school, come home, eat dinner, watch TV, try to have some fun on the weekends, and then Monday comes and you do it again. Wake up, go to school, come home, eat dinner, watch TV, and then you try to have some fun on the weekends, and then you do it again, and then eventually you get the awesome vacation, and you feel like, man, life is gonna be different this time. I'm gonna enjoy it better. But then Monday again always comes, and it's the same thing. You work, you save, you spend. You work, you save, you spend. You work, you save, you spend. Thinking that at some point in in this cycle, it will bring you to a place where you finally feel like you've made it. Until one day, maybe you're like me, you end up in a pew at a church at a funeral, and it's almost as if you can see clearly for a moment. Like you you feel terrible for the friends and the family and maybe even the person, but there's this like weird thing in your heart when you realize like, man, one day, like there's gonna be a funeral that you can't attend because it'll be yours. It's almost as if you could see clearly for a moment and if life under the sun is, you know, this is all that there is, then actually made it only means a cold casket. And so you leave there, you're, like, you're, you're, you're super motivated, you're like, hey, you know what, actually, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to go ahead and, and maybe appreciate my family more, I'm gonna do better in life, I'm gonna try harder on my grades, maybe I'm gonna look at my, my health and really focus on what I'm eating, thinking again that those things alone will somehow fix the problem of inevitable death and bring some fuller sense of meaning to life, or at the very least, like, like, like fade off the, the, the blow, soften the blow. But months go by, and again, maybe you're like me, months go by and eventually you don't really think about it and you don't really feel as bad as you did sitting in that pew at that church at that funeral. And before you know it, it's just, you're stuck in the same cycle and you jump back into the same routine of just trying to enjoy life, work hard, and save up to buy that or date them or go there. All just busyness trying to distract ourselves from the inevitable grave that brings all things to a halting, bottomless, purposeless, deafening zero. We learned this morning that it is actually the presence and the power of sin that corrupts the equation. It is sin that tries to convince us that there is real life to be experienced apart from God. And it is sin that tries to lull us to sleep by distracting us with with things that aren't actually as important as they try to make themselves out to be while simultaneously being led straight to hell. If that's you tonight, we're gonna learn why there is this, I believe there is this unceasing nagging in your soul, almost as if you know that there is more to life. Look with me at verse 11, he says here, he moves on. He says, he has made everything beautiful into time. Also he has put eternity into man's hearts, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He has put eternity into man's hearts. What is eternity? If you're taking notes, this is a good space. It is infinite or unending time. It is infinite or unending time. In a sense, it is is what is before time began and what will continue long after it is concluded. In short, it is forever. 
Now, like, I don't know about you, but there are two things that really fascinate me. Um, before I go to bed often, I'll, I'll pull up my phone and I'll watch YouTube. And um, one of those things that I'll typically end up watching for whatever reason are scary videos of the ocean. I hate the ocean. I'm not an ocean person, but for whatever reason, like I get on my phone and I'm like, man, I really want to just terrify myself before I go to bed. I don't know why I do this, but I do it. And so here's just like a little, little like, Take this home with you, back pocket it, look up videos of the North Ocean. I promise it'll, it'll jack you up. Um, but I'll, I'll sit there and watch videos of that. And the other thing that I'll do at times, again, I'll go on YouTube and I'll look up like, hey, how do people try and like explain what was before was is? Does that make sense? Like, like how is it that people try and explain? Like, like, how did reality exist before everything was created, right? And then you'll get these theories about like particles and atoms and things, but then you always get stuck in like, okay, well, where did those come from? And then I'll also like go to, hey, what does forever look like? You know what I mean? Like after time is finished, because time is a created thing. The Bible says that, that God ordered that to be here. And so like, what is eternity? What does forever look like? And my mind will just start to race and I'll start thinking, man, God, you are so big and so good and so creative and so powerful and so beautiful. Like, like what is all, like sometimes I feel like we just put God in this box and we're like, yeah, I know everything about who he is and man, being in America, this is exactly how he is, it doesn't matter. And, and it's like, no, God is so much bigger. The Bible says that God has put a piece of that eternity in you. The Bible says that God has put a piece of that eternity in you. And so the end of verse 11 says that, so that man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And so what does this mean? It means that every person, whether you have the ability to understand it or, or correctly say like, hey, this is how I'm feeling. We all have this longing really to know at least three things because this eternity lives in us. These are the three things. You can write them down. Number one, how did we get here? Everyone, I don't care who you are. I don't care how old you are. Where we come from, what part of the country, how did we get here? Number two, why are we here? Is there some purpose behind this? Why are we here? And then number three, will there come a time when we won't be? I'll say them again. How did we get here? Why are we here? And will there come a time when we won't be? This is the eternity that lives within us all and it's fascinating past, present, and future. And so what the world tries to do is answer these questions with no regard for God. This is what they say. This will sound familiar to you, uh, probably. You're a cosmic accident just kind of formed by chance, right? There's nothing that really separates you from the turtles that we try to save by forcing people to drink out of paper straws at Starbucks, right? Like, like I'm dead. there's nothing different from you than the animals that occupy space in these, in these mountains with us. The second thing that they'll say is you have no predetermined purpose, so just kind of live however you like as long as whoever is in charge of the country that you live in says it's right and true. And then the third thing that they'll say is there's no real life after death, just darkness. And so just try to make the most or the best out of this as you can and enjoy it while you're still breathing. And so what does scripture say about that eternity? What does scripture say about eternity? How did we get here? Colossians chapter one, verse 16. If you'd like to write it down, you can. They won't be on the screen. Colossians chapter one, verse 16 says this about how did we get here? The Bible says, for by him, speaking of Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, meaning people in power or angels or created things or rulers or authorities, all things, everything, was created through him, and watch this, and for him. You were created by Jesus, for Jesus, to know Jesus. 
I'll say it again, you were created by Jesus, for Jesus, to know Jesus. Why are we here? Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. You can write it down, look it up later. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What does that mean? I believe that we have an assignment on our lives. You have an assignment on your life from God in which he will work in you and through you to make Jesus known to the world for his good pleasure and for your joy. This is why you're here. And then number three, will there come a time when we cease to exist? Revelation chapter 21, if you can get there quickly, please do. Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse one, going through verse five. Will there come a time when we cease to exist? The Bible says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth, the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things that passed away. Verse five, he says, and he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So does it all end? Does it all end? No. God putting eternity in your hearts means, watch this, friends, that he created you for it. God putting eternity in your hearts means that he created you for it, which is the reason why death is so foreign to us. And we try to reconcile it like it's just a normal part of life. It's not. God putting eternity in your hearts means that he created us for it. This is what gives life meaning, that in the end, all that we do, the busyness, it has a purpose, which is knowing and loving and enjoying and serving and worshiping God, starting now and lasting forever. This is not a, hey, we'll figure it out when that time comes. It's a today is the day of salvation, starting today and lasting forever. Please hear me as clear as I possibly can because I don't want to get this twisted. Relationship with God is the only thing that brings purpose and meaning to life and allows you to enjoy family and work and play and laughter and leisure and all of these things that God considers good. The Bible says that he is the father of lights and every good and perfect thing comes from his hand. The corrupted equation can be fixed. There is an answer to the problem that places everything in order. And my friends, if you haven't heard it before, the answer is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Romans chapter three, verse 23, we looked at it this moment, it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. That's the bad news. Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of that is death, eternal separation from God in hell. That's the worst news. But here's the best news. Romans chapter five, verse eight. But God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Who's Christ? The Bible teaches of Christ being the third person of the Godhead. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. His name is Jesus, one God in three persons, and 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, he came to be born in a manger. The king of the world, the king of the universe, humbled himself. The Bible says it was in him that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell as a baby. He was surrounded by animals and, and shepherds and people. The Bible doesn't teach much about what happens between that moment and the time that he turned 30 when he declared his public ministry. But at the age of 30, he would surround himself with 12 disciples whom he'd call his friends and and he he grabbed them and he said, I'm gonna teach you the meaning and the purpose of life. I'm gonna show you how this kind of acts out through my life and what I do and what I say. And so as we follow Jesus through the gospels, we see that he does incredible things. We see, we see that he walks on water. He, he tells paralyzed men to get up out of their mat, get off their mat and walk. He looks at people that are blind and deaf and he says, look and see and hear. He looks at demons and says, get out of there and sends them into pigs. He will look at a dead person in a tomb and say, come out the most amazing human being to ever exist, yet still fully God, walks with sinners and eats with them. And he says, I have come for those that are sick, for the righteous, they don't need repentance, they don't think they need me, I've come to to, to heal those that know that they are dying in their sin. Jesus would make a lot of people upset because along with doing these incredible things, he would say things like, your sins are forgiven. Now to us, that might not seem like a big deal, but to the religious teachers of the day, that was a huge deal because they would think, wait a minute, hold on, who can forgive sins but God alone? And so it's in Jesus saying this constantly, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. We're we're given insight into, into what Jesus was claiming to be, to be God incarnate. The, the Christmas story, we hear it often, Emmanuel, God with us. And so the religious teachers, they don't like this because they're stuck in their tradition and, and, and they're just about their own rules and they don't want to change the way that they've been taught and how they've been living. And so they concoct this plan and they get with the Roman government at the time and they say, hey, we need to do something about this Jesus because he's going to start a rebellion here. So Jesus knows this and the night before he was crucified, he gathered himself with his 12 disciples, his 12 friends. And you know what the savior of the world, the king of the universe, the God who created all things did? He ate with them, washed their feet. He then walked to the garden of Gethsemane where he would bow before his father in heaven. The Bible says like, great drops of blood fell from his face because of how much agony he was in. And he prayed this prayer, which is the most amazing thing ever. And I try to model my life after this. And I think as a church, we should as well. He says, Father, if there is any way that we can do this any other way, Lord, would it happen? And yet not my will, but yours be done. He tells the disciples to keep watch and uh, they continue to fall asleep. 
and then night continues to pass on and night passes on and it's darker and it's darker and it's darker. And then in the distance, you hear the clanging of swords and chains and clubs, the Bible says. The Pharisees would come and meet him in the garden and they would say, who is this Jesus? Because one of his disciples, Judas, found them and led them to Jesus and the disciples in the garden and Judas comes up to kiss him and Jesus says, why, why, why would you do this and come and try and capture me in a garden? You saw me teaching in the temple. So there's, there's a scuffle there and they capture Jesus, they put him in chains and they lead him away into an illegal trial where he stands before the high priest and they're trying to get something on Jesus because again, he's incredible. And so they're trying to come up with all of these theories and these lies and they're saying he did this and he did that and there's no one that's like unifying testimony. In that day, you need two people to agree in order for it to actually be considered true. And so they're trying to like figure out how they can get Jesus to be executed in some way, but it's not working because hear me clearly, he's not guilty. And then everybody, in, in, in the chaos and in the, in the, in the noise, it kind of hushes and the high priest looks at Jesus standing there having done nothing wrong and you know what he says? Are you the son of God? And Jesus, having said nothing yet, looks directly in his eyes. And he says, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds. Blasphemy, the man says, blasphemy. This man is claiming to be God. We have all that we need. He tears his clothes as a sign of anger and distress. And everybody there gets all riled up and they start beating him. They put a cloth around his eyes. They spit on him. They say, prophesy. They lead him away from there to stand before Rome. And they're like, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Man in charge, Pilate says, but he's done nothing wrong. They say, crucify him. That, that type of punishment was reserved for only the worst type of criminals in the Roman government at that time, specifically those that were considered traitors. So Pilate, in an effort to please the crowd so there wouldn't be some kind of revolt, leads Jesus away to be flogged. Now, I know many of you have heard about that before, but for those that haven't, it was a torture mechanism where they'd have some kind of handle with leather straps attached to it, and on the ends of those would be metal pieces of, pieces of objects, sharp objects, bones, rocks, things of that nature, and they would whip the person over and over and over and over again. And the, 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 the horrifying part, the most painful part, wasn't just getting hit with the item, it was when it ripped off after and took pieces of flesh with it. Oftentimes, like please hear this, oftentimes it was this in of itself that would kill people. More often than not, people didn't walk away from that. And yet I'm, I'm convinced that it is Jesus being fully God and fully man that enables him to stand up in power and continue to walk. The Bible then says that Jesus is led away to a courtyard and before him stands a battalion or a cohort of Roman soldiers. That's about 600 Roman guards that lay on their face in mockery and say, are you the king? The Bible says that they take a crown of thorns and put it on his head. The two places in your body that have the most veins that produce the most blood are your head and your feet. They put it on his head and then even more so than that, they take a reed and they beat him in the face. Isaiah says that Jesus was beaten until he was unrecognizable. I'm convinced that it's in this moment that this started to take place, really. 
They would take a purple robe and a scepter, they put it on his back and place it in his hand. And they would fall at their feet in mockery and say, hail the king. I always think about this moment because this is Jesus, this is God. Again, this isn't just a man. This is the one that created the people that would torture him. And, and it's, it's funny, it's not funny, but it's interesting. Like here's this little section of them bowing down in mockery and yet all of the universe at the same time is doing so, but authentically. Revelation says that there are, there are beasts and elders that cast their crowns and they scream, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Look at the humility of Jesus that he stays. After this, they'd place a cross on his back that would weigh about 100 pounds and they'd lead him the distance of about six and a half football fields up a hill called Golgotha. And it's there that they would nail him to a cross. They would put a nail between two of his wrists and they would put one through his feet and they would hang him there to die. Now people oftentimes at, at this point in time by crucifixion, they wouldn't die because of blood loss, although that's certainly possible. They would oftentimes die from asphyxiation, which is loss of, of, uh, of, of oxygen being able to be produced in their body because they'd be hanging. And so in order for them to catch a breath, they'd have to lift themselves up, but in doing so was excruciating pain. And so they'd sit there oftentimes and lose consciousness. Oxygen wouldn't get to their brain and they would just pass out. Can you imagine the, the, the amount of water loss, blood loss, the cramps. I mean, it is, it is the most devastating thing you can think of. And here is Jesus hanging on the cross, dealing with this physical pain, and yet he still can say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is our God. And he hangs there and put him there around nine o'clock, around 12, about three hours later. Look it up, it's incredible. The Bible says that the sky grows dark which is a sign of God's judgment. And for three hours, we don't really hear anything about what happens because I believe that it's in that moment that the father would pour out his wrath for sin on him. It was so excruciating, not just the physical death that he was experiencing, but the spiritual death that he would say, and look in your Bibles, they don't translate this because it's so powerful. In Aramaic, Jesus would say, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabashatani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Around three o'clock, the Bible says that he would bow his head and give up his spirit just kind of blow past that often, but it's in that that we see that his life was not taken from him. Jesus says, no one takes the life from the son of man. I willingly lay it down for those that I love. I bow my head and I give up my spirit. Back in the garden, he would say, if I wanted to, I can call down a legion of angels, 6,000 angels to get me out of this. And yet again, willingly lay down my life for those that I love. That night he would die Two people, Nicodemus and Joseph from Arimathea would go and they'd ask Pilate, hey, can we have the body of Jesus? And Pilate is kind of confused because it's like people that were crucified would often hang on the cross for days. And Jesus died in six hours, which again, I'm convinced is, is a product of the spiritual death that he suffered on the cross, six hours, he's dead, what? But he says, okay, take the body. And so they get the body off the cross and they take him to a tomb, they roll a stone out front that's the end of Friday. Sunday morning. We know of three women that would 
approach the tomb to embalm his body. They couldn't do it at that point in time when he had died because it was Sabbath or approaching that. And so they go to the tomb and they're wondering who is gonna roll the stone away. And as they get close to the tomb, they see something interesting. There's an angel and he looks at them and he says, my favorite words in the world. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. And so how does that translate, my friends, to your own personal faith with the Lord? Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God rose him from the dead, you too will be saved. What does it mean to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? This has gotta be, if I'm being honest with you, the most confusing part of like the entirety of Christianity. What does it mean to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. It is not to sit in a church chapel at Hume Lake in winter camp and say under your breath so that nobody hears you, Jesus is Lord, I think I punched my ticket, I might get in. It's not it. To say that Jesus is Lord is to quite literally say, Jesus, you own me. You are my master. You have the authority to tell me how to live, how to think, what to believe, where to go. God, I'm following you with everything that I have regardless of what it might cost me. Jesus, you are Lord. I give over my life. I don't have the, I can't be offended by things anymore. I don't have the right to, to, to argue with you. Jesus, just do it. You own me. I'm your property. You bought me with your blood. What does it mean to believe in your heart that God rose him from the dead is to believe everything that he said that he would do and everything that he said about himself, that he is God, that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the promised one that has come to set you free from that purposeless, meaningless life. It's to believe that he did what he said that he would do in forgiving your sin by dying and raising again. The Bible says that he who knew no sin, Jesus who had not committed sin, became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, he was punished as if he had sinned, although he was perfect so that you who had sinned could be treated as if you hadn't. It is a great exchange. And so tonight, I don't invite you into something real. I'm not talking about just believing that God exists. The Bible says that even the demons believe in God and yet they shudder because they too will be thrown into hell. I'm not talking about just some, some like mental like, hey man, God might exist, he's out there or something. No, 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 Jesus is Lord. God, forgive me of my sin. And then what does John 3.16 say? I, I lost it. What is John, John 3.16? Come on, friends. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, real life, lasting life. And so this is what I'm gonna ask you to do. If you're in this room and you're like, I've never made that decision, 
I've kind of been indifferent towards God, never honestly maybe really crossed my mind. I'm gonna ask you to do something bold tonight. I'm gonna ask you to stand. Why am I gonna ask you to stand if you'd like to make Jesus the Lord of your life and enter into what I believe is the most overflowing, overwhelming, most real relationship and life-giving thing that you can have? Three reasons, number one, because I believe that it is an expression of the already made decision to follow Jesus in your heart and it just showcases it. Saying Jesus is your Lord is taking a stand against everything in the world that is evil And what better way than to say, I'm all in. The second reason is this, because if you cannot stand in a room full of Christians that will celebrate you, then how am I supposed to believe that you're gonna stand in a world that hates God? Number three, because I want those that came up to camp with you, your leaders, your counselors, maybe even for some of you, your parents, to see that you're making this decision and then hold you accountable. This is not something that you do on your own. This is a faith that you get born into with others. And they're responsible for checking up on you and making sure that you're on the right path because here's the truth, you are now representing the Lord. So I'm not gonna ask anybody to close their eyes or bow their heads or any of that because Christianity is exactly this, boldness. On the count of three, if you'd like to make Jesus the Lord of your life, would you stand? Three, two, one. If you are in this room, just stay standing, stay standing for a moment, stay standing. If you're in this room and you would consider yourself a Christian, I would invite you to just extend a hand as a sign of of you joining in with me as we pray for them. Father, we lift these individuals up to you. God, those that are making the confession to follow you with their life, to say that Jesus is Lord is to say that nothing else is, and they they would willingly go to the cross themselves for you. And so God, would you, in strength, would you strengthen them? Would you empower them? Would you give them what they need to stand strong in a world that is growing increasingly more hateful and hate, hatred towards you? God, fill them with your spirit. Surround them with people that will encourage and love them. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat. One more call. One more call, one more call. For those of you that are in this room and you're a Christian or you've claimed to be and you haven't been producing fruit, we'll talk about that tomorrow, I'm excited. You haven't been producing fruit, meaning that your life does not reflect what you believe. I don't invite you tonight not to jump back in the faith and get saved again or anything. I don't believe that that's true. I'm asking you to repent. I'm gonna give you an opportunity to say, I've been living my life the wrong way. And after hearing these messages, I know that I need to get all in, all involved, all sold out because the world's only getting worse, y'all. I'm in classrooms in public schools and I see it. Wait for the next four or five years. If that's you tonight, I'm gonna count down from three to zero. And if that's you, I want you to just raise your hand. 
and say, I, I wanna commit my life, I wanna repent, and I wanna say, Jesus, I, I'm, coming, I'm coming home. If that's you tonight, would you raise your hand? Three, two, one, zero. Keep them there. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray for those that are in this room that would say that they have not been living the way that the gospel says we ought to. God, I pray that you would do something powerful in their life. Lord, your, your word says that we produce fruit by keeping with repentance. And so for those that are making this decision, would you once again convince them that you are real, that you are good, and you are the only source that produces true life? We love you, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. amen.